think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Just when you think you're out, we'll pull you back in. Hello. We're back to look through the worldview of your mind, to think about how you come through the world, how you process the information of the world, which means that I'm here today to tell you that God will give what the people need. That might be the problem sometimes in this world. Notice what I didn't say. God will not give you what you want, unless, of course, what you want is actually what you need. Now, what am I talking about? Well, we're going to do a lot of work today. So we've got some heavy lifting to get through. Where you're going, we are going to get through the entirety of First Samuel, which is an ambitious plan because I thought when going through some of this material with my Sunday school class that, you know, First Samuel would be easy and simple and that we would fly through it in like two, three weeks. <laughs> okay, I'm better now. Yeah, it's been like two months because we keep getting questions and we keep getting bogged down on things. So, with no one to ask me questions, unless you want to email them, then I think we can do this in a day. So, where in time are we? We are not Carmen San Diego, but we are in the time of the Judges, the Book of Samuel which you'll hear me refer to it a lot probably that way. When I say that, we're talking about First and Second Samuel, but primarily today, First Samuel. In Samuel, what we're dealing with is the transitionary time period. We are moving from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And First Samuel will explain to you how we get there. Much to do and less time to do it in, but lots and lots and lots of worldview things to think through as we do that. So, there was a man from Ramathaim Zophim, say that three times fast, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Just one of those um, precision and faithful things to deal with when talking about God. Have you noticed already in your Bible how many things occur with women who have no children when ordinarily they would have been expected to have had children? You know, with people like Sarah and Rebecca and even Ruth. And now, if you are, and actually go back to the judges, um, Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, and now you're seeing the same thing with Hannah. Always remember this connection going forwards when we talk about the precision and the long-suffering of God and his accomplishing of his purposes. What is the most barren of all wombs? The virgin womb. Guaranteed to not have children, right? And yet what has God been doing throughout your Old Testament thus far? He has been demonstrating that he is the one who is in control of this, not you. And that includes even amongst the virgin. Excuse me. So, we've got this going on. She wants children. She wants Peninnah to stop picking on her, to stop torturing her. So she prays to God, and what do you know? Lo and behold, Samuel is born. You're going, hey, I know that Samuel guy. Yes, yes you do, but not yet you don't. So, chapter 2 gives you this song of thanksgiving as Hannah is exalting, and she's praising God. If you want to see a good example of Old Testament praise with deep theology, read 1 Samuel chapter 2. It will, in fact, do you well. Now, at the end of this chapter, you see Samuel 
being given over to the work of the tabernacle. So this was Hannah's promise. She will dedicate him to the Lord. She fulfills that, and then she has given other sons and daughters. This is important because Eli, who is the judge and priest, notice how we didn't see that in Judges, but we are seeing that here in Samuel. The roles are being merged. The people are trying to cut out the middleman. Unfortunately, in this world for this people, the middleman is actually God. And he's really good at his job. So the priests are technically by lot because they are born into their role. The judge is not. The judge is raised up by God to deliver the people, which means what you're seeing here is Israel is trying to cut that out by making the priests the judges. This would be an issue because while, yes, God is in control of the lot, it is removing the ability of God to raise up a judge for the people. Unless, of course, you're God and you raise up who you want, when you want, how you want, because you are precisely accomplishing your purposes. Should have had one more P or an A in there and we've been all set. But anyhow, so Eli is not really good at his job. His sons are even worse at their job, unless, of course, their job is to be holy terrors and raise Cain throughout the land of Israel. In that case, they're doing real good. In a nutshell, they are being impatient. They are not waiting for the proper portion of the sacrifice. They are taking the food that they would like. They are disregarding the worship of God and are having sexual relations with the women serving at the tabernacle, which really leads you to only one of two options, which is one, that they are engaging in this activity with these young upstanding women, ha ha ha, either in plain sight of the crowd or they are going behind the curtain of the holy place to have privacy. That's, wow, on the scale of things that are wrong, that's got to be like, way up there. You may be asking yourself, self, why has God allowed Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, to be like this? Because he has preserved them in his judgment. Remember, we saw this with Cain and Abel. This is part of the preservation, the, the preserving, preservative, that's the word I want, the preservative work of God. Got to get that adjective going. This is part of that work, is God is giving the people what they need. And right now what they need is a swift kick in the rear end because they are not good, they are not upright, they are not righteous. Now again, as we've said before, might probably say this again, when speaking about Israel in the Old Testament, we are speaking hyperbolically. We are speaking in broad brush strokes and wide categories. We have to. Is every person in Israel completely and utterly sinful, forsaking of God, and walking away from righteousness? No. We've just seen Hannah and how that is not the case with her. That's going to be true in Israel as a whole. The vast majority of the people, though, are not walking in his ways, and we'll see examples of this throughout the book. So, chapter 3, Samuel is called. Why? Because it is time for God to raise up a judge for the important work of finding and selecting and mentoring a king. <coughs> Excuse me again. It is not being, it's, it, this is not going to be left to chance or to lot with um with Eli and his sons. This is going to be up to God to raise up his priest and his deliverer to accomplish this purpose. So he does so. In chapter 4, you see just how bad Phineas and Hophni are. They're going, they're leading the Israelites into battle, and this is not going well. Now, remember from 
your work in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and the history of Judges and Joshua. When Israel is not succeeding in battle, and here in chapter 4, they're getting their butts kicked by the Philistines. When Israel is not succeeding in battle, why is that the case? Yes, because they are being unfaithful. When Israel is being faithful and walking in God's ways, what happens in their battles? They whoop butt and take names and no one can stop them. So the response from Israel should be when we are losing in battle and not doing well, the response should be that, hey, we need to return to God and walk in his ways. And by the way, when we're talking about what time it is here, if you're dealing with Samuel as a young man or an older teenager maybe even by this point, you're still talking early 11th century, so early 1000s. So that would put you 400 years removed from the Exodus. So it's been a while, but still, the books have been written. The Levites are supposed to be doing their work. The tabernacle is still there. These are supposed to be reminders that Yahweh is God in Israel. If they are not, that is not a failure on the part of Yahweh. That is a failure on the part of his priests and his people to not be obedient and observant. So, Their answer is not to return to God, but to go get the ark as a trinket, a symbol of the power of Yahweh, and to take it into battle. And what do you know? God just loves this plan, thinks it's the bee's knees, and basically whacks him upside the head with it by allowing the ark to be captured by the Philistines. Which is interesting because what that would have meant to both the Israelites as operating as pagans at this point and the Philistines, who are pagans, is that Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, is more powerful than Yahweh. That's how this would have been seen by everyone. Which, once again, if you're the pagan Israelites, is a perfect example. Because you know what? If you're going to treat Yahweh of Israel as only Yahweh of Israel and not Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh, God of hosts, commander, creator, preserver, savior, judge, accomplisher, sanctifier, all of these things. If you are not going to treat him as such, then you know what? Maybe it's time you you learn that when you have a weak, puny God that maybe Hulk just will smash. Sorry, that's an Avengers reference. If you haven't seen Avengers, you don't get it, but it's okay. You know, if you are going to have such a puny, worthless God, then what are you going to end up with? A puny, worthless God. So... God demonstrates his power to the Philistines just so they don't become mighty in their own eyes and that Dagon gets whooped. The Philistines gets gets whooped because Yahweh's like, you know what, let's, let's have some fun with the Philistines here. Let's, let's cause them problems and demonstrate that I am God and there is no other. So they get the outbreaks of whatever it is you want to deal with the tumors being. Have fun doing the research on that. You'll be blessed. So they end up sending the ark back. And as the ark returned, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So remember, Hophni and Phinehas are dead in battle. Eli dies of shock that the ark is gone and that his sons are killed. More that the ark is gone, so give Eli a little credit there. So Samuel's in charge here. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord alone. This is good. This is good. We're in chapter 7, by the way. So Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we and said there, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So as priest, he's doing his priestly duty. 
He's agreeing with their confession that, yes, you are worthless, no good, dirty, rotten sinners. We must make sacrifice, atone for your sins. Now repent and walk in the newness of life. So when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Why? Well, because for all of Samuel's life, they've been getting their butts kicked by the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Yes! Yes! Because he is the Redeemer. He is the Sanctifier of Israel. So Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the the Lord thundered with a great thunder, and on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Here we go. We've returned to the Lord. We have walked in his ways. And what do you know? God has honored this. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel in Gilgal in Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. So in other words, Samuel's now traveling around, discipling, training, and presiding over the rules and regulations of Israel. This is good. In a nutshell, if you come to the tabernacle, you're going to see Samuel. If you got an issue, Samuel's going to take care of it. If you need discipleship and training, Samuel is doing it, which means everyone in Israel, as Samuel's going around in the circuit, should know who Samuel is. Remember that detail, please. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah, but the, and they were judging in Beersheba. <coughs> His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. That's not good. So as good as Samuel is, kids are still louts and worthless. So there you go. All the, Israel, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Oh, that's a problem. See, you're, you're Israel. You're not supposed to be like all the nations. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since that day that I brought them out of up from and I'm sorry, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. In other words, Israel is no good at this, and nothing has changed. So Samuel warns them. They don't listen. They still want a king. They are given Saul. And we're gonna we're gonna pick up the pace a little bit here. I get I, I understand. So they pick they, they end up with Saul. Saul, you get a big description of Saul in chapter nine and chapter ten. Samuel has his doubts. God confirms him though Saul is chosen. He interesting note, Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. So when he encounters Samuel, he actually is on his way to see Samuel, the seer, and he actually sees Samuel and goes, hey, do you, do you know if the seer is in? And, saw, and Samuel goes, yeah, I'm, I'm the seer, so come on down. Why is that a big deal? Because Saul's not a godly man. He hasn't been to the tabernacle. He hasn't been to any of the cases brought before Samuel. He hasn't been for the instruction, for the teaching that Saul there, that Samuel is doing. He hasn't been around for any of that. He's not a godly man. That's key because you know what? Israel doesn't want a godly king. 
They want a king so they don't have to fight. They want a king so they don't have to honor God. They want a king so that they can be just like everybody else. So what does God give them? A king just like everybody else. And he confirms him. Sends him off into battle in chapter 11, and he is defeated. Or he's not defeated. He defeats the Ammonites, rather. And then you get Samuel reminding them in chapter 12. Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and for your fathers. And he runs down the history, pointing them out, pointing out that just like the people then, they too are a sinful people and that they have cried out for a king and rejected God, which shouldn't have to be said, but that's not good. So you see the warning. The king is confirmed. They go to war. They have victory, not because Saul is good at this, but because his son, who is righteous and trusting in God, is good at this. And that in spite of Saul's stupidity, there is actually victory by Jonathan and his general. So once again, from the beginning here, you see Saul walking in godliness, winning. Not walking in godliness, losing. Walking in godliness because of Jonathan, winning. And you even see the sin of same of Saul. And again, I'm not sure how long the time frames are here. There's a lot of discussion about that. But when Saul was anointed, Samuel told him to go and wait. And I think there's other things stuck in the middle of this before you get to chapter 15 where Saul is disobedient. Because this has got to occur at the beginning of Saul's reign. Because Saul is not a king for godliness. He is not a king for the redemption of Israel. He is not a king for the success of Israel. He is a king for the judgment of Israel. And you see that in Saul and Samuel rebuking him in chapter 15 because of his disobedience, because he's usurping the role of the priest, because he is not following the commands to, to wipe out the enemy. Because he is not leading his army, but being led by his army. Because he is doing all of these things, he is trusting and fearing in his own power and in his own men, rather than trusting and fearing in God. So you get David anointed. David is so forgotten that he's literally forgotten by his own family. But David's bona fides are secured in chapter 17. When he goes into battle against Goliath. And again, you want, you want a great pep talk before a game right here? Here you go. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hands. Yeah! Don't you want to go, like, chop somebody's head off in battle right now? I'm telling you, you, you do. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. And you see Jonathan, a godly man, noticing David, a godly man. And what do you know? They become friends because... Birds of a feather flock together, and because there is sweet fellowship amongst the people of God. This is one of those reasons why you need the one another's. This is how one of the ways you're encouraged and how God accomplishes his plans is by putting believers in, in positions together that they can encourage and help one another. <clears throat> Saul recognizes this, tries to get David killed. Doesn't work, ends up giving his daughter in marriage. That doesn't work out for Saul either. <sighs> 
Saul has discovered that, you know, David's the guy who's next in line. And if I want my son, my son to be king and I want my name to be preserved and I want my legacy to be the thing that I want it to be, that I might need to get David out of the way. <clears throat> Which is exactly how you'd want a king to think, right? Right? No. Not even a little teensy bit. Now, if you want timing answers, I can't. I got nothing for you. We're probably end of the 11th century at this point. I don't know how long David was on the run. Months, years, we don't really know. But odds are we're close to the end of Saul's reign here. David is progressing and moving along. Saul is progressing in his madness and judgment from God, and bad things are happening. So chapter 19 tries to kill him again. David goes on the run. Jonathan and David covenant together with one another. Just Jonathan recognizes David's going to be king. David knows he's going to be king. Saul recognizes David's going to be king. Everybody seems to understand this, and yet nobody seems to be willing to walk down on a different path. So you see Saul confirmed in his delusion, chapters 21 and 22, where the priests who see David as a faithful servant of Saul help, um, help David. And then you see Saul recognizing this not as a godly act of compassion, but as a, an act of treason. And you get the Edomite, Doeg, who's like, all right, I'll kill some priests for you. And he does. And the priests are slain except for um, Ahimelech, who is it Ahimelech? Yeah, but once, no, uh, Ahitub Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, is who escapes and becomes priest with David. And you see David not being bitter, though. This is one of the great lessons here. So, who's preserving Saul as king? David recognizes that it's God. Who's preserving David in the wilderness? David recognizes that it's God. So, who's preserving Israel, both for judgment and for salvation? Well, everybody's recognizing, or at least they should be, that it is God. And you see that with chapter 23. <clears throat> Philistines come and attack the city of Keilah. David's in the area. David rescues them. When the men, when he finds out that the men are going to hand him over to Saul, David doesn't destroy the city. He leaves. They're serving the king. David is serving the king. They're serving God. David's serving God. In other words, where's my trust? My army? No. The people of Keilah? No. My wiles and ability to escape from Saul? No. My trust is that God will redeem, that the one who has preserved me thus far will preserve me even farther, and I will have success. So you have Saul continuing to pursue David. You have David having the opportunity to kill Saul and not taking it. So you see him multiple times here. <clears throat> You see him cutting off the edge of the robe here in 24. Later on, is it 26? Yeah, in chapter 26, he takes Saul's spear when he could have run him through. Um, 25, sandwiched in the middle of that, is not a good story because we get the death of Samuel. But we also get the anger of David and the multiplication of wives here as he marries Abigail. Um, he's also going to marry Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they become his wife, so... Literally, one of the commands of Deuteronomy, what is it, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 17, read Deuteronomy, it will do you good, is that the king, which David knows he's going to be, is not supposed to multiply wives. So he is supposed to be faithful to the daughter of Saul that he is married to. And yet, here we go. <clears throat> Again, so I already mentioned 26, David spares Saul. Saul's recognizing that he's not going to be king, that David is righteous, and yet we still have issues. Again, problem for David. Flees to the Philistines. Why? God has preserved you. God has upheld you. God has done all the things that he has promised to do. And yet, fear can be a powerful motivator. And here you see it getting to David. So he leaves the land, goes to the Philistines, where he's not going to be secure, and he shouldn't be secure. 
unless God's going to preserve him there too, which we already know that he will. Lesson here, Christian. Faithfulness is not getting around the trouble. Faithfulness is walking and persevering in the midst of the trouble. So you see the blessings of God upon David. You see the blessings of God upon Israel as David is preserved in the land, running around like a chicken with his head cut off, sort of, you know, hiding in the caves and in the rocks and amongst the people, and yet God is sending him the food from Abigail, and God is protecting him from the men of Keilah, and God is giving him security hiding in the cave, even though Saul is in there to, you know, to urinate. You see all of this, and yet you still see fear and worry in this world choke out the faith of a faithful man. Second thing, God is preserving David in faithfulness. God is sanctifying him. God is growing him. In the midst of your sin, God has not stopped his work. That is true in Saul. That, was, that is true in Jonathan. It was true in Samuel, and it's true here in David. So even though we have Saul off the rails, Jonathan being faithful, David vacillating sometimes in his faithfulness, you still have the preserving and sanctifying work of God going on in all of these different directions. So 28, Saul's trying to figure things out. God won't speak to him anymore because, well, he's this king for judgment, and he's going further and further down the slide, so it's getting worse and worse and worse. So he goes to the, uh, the spiritist, the medium. Now, this is one of those contentious issues that I don't think should be, because I think God brought Samuel and placed his, the spirit of Samuel right in front of Saul as a means of judgment. Because I, th- I think the medium is freaked out. Saul's freaked out. The men who are with Saul are freaked out. Everybody's freaked out but Samuel. Because Samuel's like, all right, I got a mission from God. I'm good here. And he's John Belushi. Or is it Dan Aykroyd? We're on a mission from God. And he's going to accomplish it. And he does. And he, pers- and he gives the message of judgment. And everybody in the room should know that it was a true message. Because it actually does come true. So 29, the Philistines don't trust David. Can't imagine why they would. David shouldn't be trusting the Philistines either. While David is hiding out with the Philistines, the Amalekites come and take his stuff. David rightly goes and takes it back, brings the judgment of God upon the Amalekites, and accomplishes what he's supposed to do because God is still protecting and preserving him. And then you get to the end of 1 Samuel, which is the death of Saul and Jonathan because the prophecy of Samuel comes true because it is the judgment of God upon a faithless king delivered upon a faithless nation because God has preserved them up until this point for judgment. But even in the midst of judgment, there is mercy from God because just as with Saul losing his mind, there is still Samuel discipling. There is still David being anointed. There is still the preservation of the people. There's going to come a point there is judgment. And in that judgment against Saul, there is still the blessing of David being preserved, the blessing of the people understanding what is going on, and the mercy of God being carried forward. So what have we learned here today, children? Humanity can't be trusted. Give us a nation. Give us a law. Give us the judges. Give us all of these things. And we want a king to be like everybody else. Even in blessing, there is judgment. So God preserves the nation, but he doesn't preserve it perfectly for them because they don't deserve that because his judgment will be carried out. And even in judgment, there's blessing. So even as Israel goes off the rails and even as the Philistines advance in territory and even as they whine for a king, they get a king, a king for judgment who still actually keeps the Philistines at bay. Doesn't drive them out, but he keeps them at bay. 
that's a blessing from God. And even as Saul multiplies his sin, and even as Saul multiplies his iniquity, there is still David, there is still Samuel, there are still the blessings and the teachings of God upon the people. And even as David is not perfect, and even as David sometimes gets caught up in his sin and his fear, there is still the preservation of God, there is still the sanctification of God, because there are still blessings upon God's people, even though we are not perfect. Christian, this should be a lesson for us. God is the one who is upholding all of these things by the word of his power. This is the work that Christ does. We are called to walk faithfully in a world that is under judgment and the wrath of God. That doesn't mean we are not blessed of God in this world, even when bad things happen. Rather, it means we are blessed because God has preserved us, God has sanctified us, God has redeemed us, and he is doing all of these things on behalf of his kingdom through us. And as we see the difficulties and judgments come upon this world, we can still walk faithfully because it is God who preserves us and upholds us, and it is him upon whom we are dependent. That's why we can actually bear up in the trial is rather than run away, we can stand firm because we know it is God upon whom we are dependent. It is he that has brought us to this place, and it is he that will carry us through. He will accomplish his promises. He will sanctify his people. He has not made a mistake. He will faithfully uphold everything that he has promised, and he will bring me to a good and perfect kingdom. Amen. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can fill out the contact form, send me any information you want to know, argue with me about anything you want to say. I'm good with that, and happy, happy, joy, joy. Um, trying to keep regular schedule. We'll see how it goes. Life gets fun, but trying to keep up with everything that's going on. So again, if you got questions, send them in. If not, keep listening. Send the shares with your friends and neighbors. Give us a good review. We appreciate it. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.